0: Hey, it's Alexis Asadi, and welcome to episode number three of Income Investing, a show that explores different investments that produce income and/or dividends. Thanks for tuning in and hanging out with us. Please be sure to subscribe if you want to keep up with the weekly episodes. We're currently available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and pretty much everywhere else. Today we're going to continue to discuss real estate investment trusts or REITs. These can be a great way for investors to gain exposure to revenue-producing properties. They're a super popular vehicle across the US and Canada, and they're becoming increasingly common across the world. So the topic of our discussion today is how e-commerce has changed the real estate landscape and how that has affected REITs. Now as we're going to see, REITs are just one of the many ways that we can invest for income. There are actually endless amounts of investments that pay dividends and cash distributions, whether they're in energy or real estate, financial services, mortgage lending, natural resources, or otherwise. And that's just one of the many great things about income investing. You can build a deeply diverse portfolio That pays multiple streams of cash flow. Another advantage is that you can use your investment income. Some people use it to offset their real-life expenses like their phone bills. Others reinvest their dividends and try to harness the power of compounding interest. And others still try to build enough passive income to replace their expenses altogether, thus achieving a state called financial freedom. Further, a lot of income investments can also go up in price. We've already seen that with REITs. So since they can fluctuate in value, you can then buy them low and sell them high. You can therefore get the best of both worlds by enjoying consistent cash flow and realizing a capital appreciation. And a lot of income investments are very inexpensive, especially the ones that trade on the stock market. If you've got a couple of hundred dollars to invest, then there are great opportunities available to you right now. So let's get to a question from one of our listeners. Remember, if you've got something on your mind, whatever it is, feel free to let me know at alexzasadinet slash podcast. Today's question comes from Jesse, who's in San Francisco, California. He said that he's 27 years old, loves the idea of investing for passive income, and he wanted to know if I disagree with the idea that young people should invest for capital growth and then gradually move towards fixed income investments as they get older. That's obviously the traditional personal finance strategy. So Jesse, thanks for your question. Everyone's obviously entitled to their own methods of building wealth. You know, I'm not one of those people who think that my way is superior to anyone else's, so I don't necessarily disagree with the traditional investing model. More power to you if it works for you. But I do think that the theory is problematic for a couple of reasons. First, it assumes that income-producing investments cannot appreciate in value. So therefore young people who invest for income are supposedly losing out on decades of growth. But when people think of fixed income products they're usually referring to things like conservative bond funds and money market securities. So yes, if you only invest in things like those then you probably will not get much capital growth. But they're forgetting about the thousands of other investments that you can make that pay income and that can also skyrocket in price. What about real estate investment trusts? What about mortgage funds? What about credit funds and income stocks? How about royalty trusts and MLPs and ETFs? How about owning a rental property? The income space is enormous. So why are we characterizing it as a vehicle that's only for older, risk-averse investors? Why not invest for income, earn cash flow, and get capital appreciation? Second, the theory assumes that young investors don't want or don't need passive income, but that's obviously not true. I don't know a single young person who couldn't use a few hundred extra dollars a month. From my personal experience, making revenue producing investments as a young adult was one of the best things that I ever did. It was a big part of why I could quit my job in my 20s and do what I wanted to do. Even today, I still can't think of the last time I made an investment that didn't have some sort of income component. Okay, so thanks for your question, Jesse, and let's continue on with our discussion about real estate investment trusts. Like we talked about last week, REITs are companies that invest in a portfolio of properties. Because of tax legislation, they're incentivized to focus on assets that produce revenue. So for that reason, they generally own real estate that has commercial or residential tenants as opposed to buying raw land and just sitting on it for years. REITs can also be a great way for investors to participate in properties that they otherwise couldn't afford. These businesses usually own assets like apartment buildings, and shopping malls, and telecom towers. And most people just don't have the cash to buy these things themselves. So instead, they can invest in a REIT that owns them. We also saw that a lot of REITs trade on the stock market, so you can buy them through an online brokerage account. However, you can also invest in private REITs and through funds that own REITs. However the real estate business has experienced a lot of disruption since the early 2000s and this is obviously impacting REITs. It can be good or bad depending on what you own. So take a moment to think about some of the most recent purchases that you've made. When I prepared the content for this episode, I was sitting with my laptop out on the kitchen counter in our condo. Practically everything in sight was found, bought, and paid for online. The kitchen table, the coffee table, the TV the liquor cabinet, and even the stool that I was sitting on. My wife would scour the internet for decor, try to assess whether it looked good in our home, and she would then pay for it from her laptop or from her iPhone. There was no human interaction, no talking to a cashier, no visiting a store, and definitely no asking for a husband's opinion. So when you really think about it, how much time do you spend in shopping malls and in stores? Besides food, which is also quickly migrating online, Do you have to leave your house to go shopping? Is there really much that you can't do from the comfort of your smartphone? At the very least, you probably shop more on the internet today than you did a decade ago. This is the nature of business in the 21st century. Blogs, social media, and e-commerce platforms have caused dramatic shifts in almost every sector, including real estate, and REITs have not been immune to the changing tides. People often say that real estate is the best investment because it'll always be useful, but they're clearly not paying attention. But why would websites and online shopping have an effect on property? They could literally not be any more different. One you can see, feel and live in, and the other is, well, on the internet. They seem completely unrelated. Well, to explore further, let's take a look at one of the biggest internet retailers, Amazon, which earned $178 billion of revenue in 2017 alone. Now, websites can be a little bit deceiving. They might look simple and are easy to use, but they're merely what's presented to the customer. They're sort of like an entrance to a mall. They're like that to make shopping easy, but behind them can lie a sprawling business that spans the globe. When you visit amazon.com or one of its affiliate websites and buy a product, it triggers a complex fulfillment process. Amazon receives the order and it tries to get the item to you as quickly as possible regardless of where on the planet you reside. So let's say you live in Tokyo, Japan. Amazon's headquarters are in Seattle. It could take days or even a couple of weeks to make the delivery across the Pacific Ocean. But in a world of desired efficiency and high customer expectations, This is not an acceptable proposition. As such, Amazon keeps inventory internationally. In fact, it occupies what are called fulfillment properties in the US, Canada, the UK, France, Germany, Poland, Italy, Slovakia, Spain, Japan, China, India, Israel, and Australia, and dozens of cities within those countries. In 2017 alone, it leased over 150 million square feet of warehouses and storage facilities. Amazon is representative of a broader trend, it's not the only company that does this. The Chinese internet retailer Alibaba has about a half a billion annual customers and ships over 55 million packages each day. It goes without saying that it also occupies a massive amount of storage space around the world. There are other players in the market too that you might have heard of, like Google and Walmart. In fact, it's estimated that e-commerce businesses need three times more storage space than traditional brick-and-mortar companies. It's no surprise that e-commerce has grown the way that it has. If I wanted to, I could run my businesses, record podcasts, take selfies, order sushi and buy treats for my dog without even getting out of bed. In a lot of ways, it has simplified life. Now, the rapid and inevitable expansion of e-commerce has sent the demand for warehouse properties through the roof. These large, boring chunks of real estate have emerged as some of the most valuable assets around. Not only are companies aggressively competing for them, but their sheer size makes them relatively scarce. Even smaller industrial properties like infill sites have benefited too. REITs that concentrate on industrial properties have therefore done exceptionally well. They've been able to increase what they charge to their tenants in rent by about 7% a year, and they have an average occupancy of 96%. Now you'll recall from last week's episode that REITs need to pass on the majority of their taxable revenue to their shareholders. So rent hikes and high occupancy levels should translate into higher earnings, which is very good news for income investors. In fact, industrial REITs earned the highest returns of all other REITs in 2016, posting a gain of almost 31%. Unless we discover a new way to store products, it seems like this type of real estate has nowhere to go but up. So if you want to consider investing in industrial REITs, there are plenty of options to choose from. Some include DCT Industrial Trust, Nexus REIT, Duke Realty Corp, Stag Industrial, Dream Industrial REIT, and First Industrial Realty Trust. But before you jump in with two feet, let's first think about the risks involved. In general, what could cause industrial REITs that focus on warehouses and storage assets to decline in value? Nothing obviously can go up forever. Well, the biggest threat to industrial REITs is probably a decline in consumer spending and thus a weaker economy. For example, if we entered a recession or if purchases cooled down, it could become problematic. E commerce companies would become less profitable and would presumably not need as much storage space. That's because much of what we buy online and offline is discretionary. We would stop making a lot of these purchases if we lost our jobs or took salary cuts. If my company started to decline, all I would buy is food for me, my wife and my dog, I'd get coffee and whiskey and internet. Everything else I could live without. Our household expenditures could quickly go towards zero. As such, if markets cratered, it's likely that e-commerce would too, so if you're going to invest in an industrial REIT you'll want to be confident of two things. First, that internet shopping will expand. And second, that the economy will continue to grow. Now, most people would agree that both of these should occur over the long term. But warehouses and storage centers are by no means isolated from dips. I should also point out that even though industrial REITs may seem attractive, you'll still want to vet them individually. Just because an industry as a whole is performing, does not mean that all companies within it will too. Now, as good as e-commerce has been for industrial real estate, it has thrown a wrench at traditional office space. Thanks to the internet, people have also become more mobile, and products and services are quickly disappearing from physicality and into the cloud. There are not as many businesses left where having an office is absolutely crucial. Startups and entrepreneurs are happy to work out of coffee shops if it can save them money. In the early 2000s, large companies like Yahoo and IBM and Bank of America started to let more people work from home. The idea was to cut back on unnecessary office expenses. Why pay $100,000 a month to rent an office when all your staff really need is a phone and internet connection? And That was really bad news for office real estate operators. Now, by 2013, companies began calling their employees back. They found that people were harder to manage from a distance, and it became easier for them to waste time and to work on their side businesses, and it was harder to build a strong corporate culture. But that doesn't change the fact that both physical products and humans are less necessary in today's business climate, thanks to automation through the internet. And to the extent that physical products are still used, industrial warehouses now store a lot of them. As well, companies that called back their staff had opened something of a Pandora's box. Many employees appreciated working from home, they resented being forced to work at the office again. And for that reason, it's been difficult to enforce a complete return to tradition. This change in dynamic has forced real estate companies to adapt from single occupant offices towards communal working centres. They now provide rows of desks and electrical outlets and internet and snacks and coffee. A good example is a company called WeWork, which provides shared workspace and in less than a decade, it grew to a $20 billion business. But still, office REITs and even ones that own traditional retail space have strong headwinds to face. Not only do they have to deal with the same hazards as industrial REITs like economic downturn, but they have the added problem of simply being less desirable in the modern world. Good companies will adapt and they'll continue to thrive, but it's not an easy business, and they have the internet to blame for it. CNBC published an article in 2017 with a headline that pretty much sums it up. America is overmalled, but not enough warehouses to support Amazon. So I'm going to keep economic trends as an ongoing theme throughout the Income Investing podcast. Next week, we're going to talk about a phenomenon that will deeply impact all North American investors in the coming years. According to Pew Research and the Social Security Administration, about 10,000 baby boomers, people born between the 1940s and the 1960s, are retiring per day in the US. And in Canada, as of 2016, there were more seniors than there were children. So how can we use REITs to profit from this massive demographic shift? Until next Wednesday, please take a moment to visit my website, AlexaZasadi.net. I've got a free book that you can download there called The Foundations of Investing. It's about 90 pages long, and it explores the ground-level concepts that I think any serious investor should know. Thanks a lot, and I'll see you next week.